Hello and welcome to our podcast named Detours. This podcast embraces the unexpected twists and turns that shapes the journeys of our lives that God sends us down. I'm your host and fellow traveler, Mike. I'm here with my beautiful wife, Deb, and we invite you to join us on this exploration of uncharted territories we encounter along the way. So without further ado, let's dive into this episode. everyone and welcome to detours this is episode number three we have made it to the big time here (laughs) our third episode ever thank you so much for joining us as you heard in the intro i'm here with my beautiful wife deb hi guys great for us to be here we are ready to go we have practiced we've gone through all the motions and we are ready to (laughs) uh, spread our wisdom to all of you out there don't make the same mistakes that we have so we're going to share a lot of those mistakes with you guys today yes that's true that's true we just pray that we can shorten your learning curve when you go through the same things that we did but uh yeah last episode deb you were brave enough to give us uh, some of your testimony which included uh, having a, a a child in your teenage years and separating from the father of the child and then going through two failed marriages and the second marriage, uh, you got saved towards the end of it. Right. And uh, that's where we kind of left off was you going into your, your single life, mm-hmm. if you will. So what, uh, what you know, the, the rest of this season is kind of dedicated to how you deal with life's detours. So what should today's topic be for uh, this podcast? I think we should really talk about the grief process. I I know that people think of grief as grieving a person, but you have to grieve your losses. Yeah, before you, I I had I never even thought of that. I, I would I, yeah, I would have thought grieving I had a parent that died or I had a, you know, brother or sister or relative or something like that that died. That's what I would grieve. But when I met you, you you do a lot of talking about grieving things, what I mm-hmm. would describe as things. Um, so what? How did you get introduced to grieving something that's that's not a person? Where what is that? Where did that come from? Well, I mean, that comes from years of therapy. <laughs> um, I think that we hold on to stuff that is very painful because grieving is very uncomfortable because it's a it's a acknowledgement of a death a death of a dream a death of a hope a death of a marriage um and those things just like when you grieve a person it's it's painful and there's these ups and downs and you're just like ah i'd rather not do that so that's why sometimes people don't associate grieving a thing or a person or a season as a viable option because it's not it's not pretty it's very sticky actually yeah especially if it's something that you're holding on to and a lot of times you don't even realize you're holding on to to certain things you could have thought that you were over a person uh, Mm -hmm. over whatever it may be and you realize when you start digging into it or there are triggers in your life that you're absolutely not over it right so, um, so yeah, this is really kind of a healing of sorts. Would you say that? I would say that. I think everyone that has unfortunately experienced a divorce needs to allow themselves to go through a grieving process and a healing so that they can move on and, and be whole. Um, not that a marriage makes you whole, but there is so much brokenness that comes from divorce that if you don't work, you know, a few of those pain points out prior to moving into another relationship. If you ever get into another relationship, it's just, it can be devastating. Yeah. And so what, what brought you, did something bring you to your knees to, to make you go, Deb, you need to heal? Oh, for sure. Uh, (laughs) Oh, well, we're going to be honest on this podcast. That's the point, right? So, um, I'm embarrassed to say, but it was it was a one-night stand that made me realize, oh my gosh, I am totally broken. I remember um, being newly divorced, and I was uh, at my parents' house, and we would do Thursday night dinner, and I was uh, 
you know, it was after dinner, I was plucking my mother's chin hairs. You know, Italian girls were a little hairy, right? And um, I'm telling her, you know, I really want to do this single life uh, the way Jesus wants me to, and I'm going to stay celibate. I'm not going to have sex until I get married again. And what is Arlene? Is she baffled when she hears you say this? She goes, how are you going to not have sex? Like emphasizing on you, like, how are you going to do this? And I go, I don't know, Ma, I'm going to pray a lot. And, like, I don't think she had much confidence in me, but... (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. Okay. Okay. And um, that was the hardest part was I... That's what was so devastating about this one-night stand. I had gone through five and a half years up until that point where I was practicing, you know diving into the word of God and I was trying to be single without having, you know, there's a lot of desires that come up in your singleness. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I think I got a little prideful about, you know, I was five and a half years in, but I didn't really have anyone to process sexuality with. I don't think the church is super comfortable talking about sex and um, the struggles that come with that. And even when you attempt to date in the church, there are lots of Christians that don't practice celibacy. And it's just like, you know, they can sing on a Sunday, I surrender all. And yet in the back of their head, they're like, yeah, I surrender everything but this. You can't have my sex life, God. And so I was pretty proud of myself. And I, and I use the word proud because it really did become a beacon of pridefulness. And... Um, about five and a half years in, I felt like, are you just holding out on me, God? Like, why? 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 Are you holding out? And what's interesting is hearing you describe it, I don't know if any of our listeners, if you've ever heard pastors talk about how Satan is like a lion that wants to isolate you from your group, and that's when you're weakest, and that's when he can attack that's when you go all in for Jesus, you can really become vulnerable going, why isn't anyone else as dedicated as I am? Mm. And you really are isolating yourself. And that's when pride, your biggest downfall is yourself. And that sounds like that's what happened to you. Oh, for sure. So keep keep going. Okay, so... um I get to that point where I do feel like the enemy is putting that lie in my head. God's holding out. I don't doubt that God is good. I just think he's holding out on me. And, oh, gosh, the dreaded Christmas party. Just don't even go to Christmas parties, people. But um, I wind up having a one-night stand with um, a coworker, And I remember when it was all said and done, he was like, gosh, you'd really like my girlfriend. And I was like, your girlfriend? I thought you broke up. Well, you know, we got into a fight. So basically, he had talked to me the whole night as if he was, you know, not attached to someone. So not only did I have this one night stand after five and a half years of celibacy, but like this guy had a girlfriend. And I just felt filthy. I went home and I felt so filthy. Like, how could I, how did I get here was really what happened. And I remember the passage, you know, God is faithful to provide a way of escape in our temptation. And when I went back and like really looked at the evening, there were three clear opportunities for me to like go and I didn't. And I was in, I wasn't just sinning. I was in iniquity. Like iniquity is I know I'm sinning and I'm going to do it anyway. It's like the, the highest form of rebellion. And I think you have these choices in these detours in life. You're either when you mess up big, you're either going to run from God and go, oh, gosh, he's never going to forgive me, or you're going to run right to the cross. And most people do run away. Yes. Because of shame, because yes. of disappointment in themselves, setting a bar too high. You can insert all sorts of reasons or excuses, depending on what your perspective is. But, yeah, that is the absolute yeah. norm. Uh, and you, yeah, you have to talk yourself out of it. God is, he, he knew you were going to mess up, Yeah, bef- as we all know. Before we ever mess up, he knows. And yeah. he died for that sin before I ever even committed it. And I I remember getting home after that night, and I, I had this 
tile floor in my condo and I threw myself on the kitchen floor and wept. And I knew that, you know, first John one nine is, you know, confess your sins and God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And so I talked to a good friend who was not comfortable talking about sex, but I didn't know who else to tell. I had to confess it to somebody. And so I called her up and I said, I did this horrible thing and I don't know, I just don't know if I can live with myself and I need, I don't even know how I got here and I need help. And um, that was kind of the catalyst that drove me to go get help from a program. It was called Family Life Skills. It was uh, a 30-week program. Another friend had taken it. And it takes you from, you know, childhood to present and shows you your, your family dysfunction and your patterns and helps you cope with anger and just all kinds of things that are very practical on how to do life from a biblical worldview. And so it. I remember the first day sitting in that class and everyone kind of was going around introducing themselves, what brought you here? And I was like, well, if I already confessed to one person, I might as well. And I, you know, I said, hey, I, I, I messed up big. I, you know, I, I feel like a failure and I need to, I need help. And... Put me in that room. Were people stunned that you said that? Were they open to it? What was the response in the room? Well, actually, even before that, life skills, where was this? Where was the actual class held? The class was in, um, well, it was in Tamarack, Florida. So if for people that don't live in that area, like greater Fort Lauderdale area, there's you know a city called Tamarack. But is this just in a community center or something? It what actually is... was in a church. It was in a church, yes. okay. and there was 12 of us, and all walks of life. I mean, young, okay. older, um, you know, widowed, divorced, recovering the addicts. Gambit. Yes, yes. Okay. And I felt really comfortable because everybody had come from some sort of brokenness. That's why you're there. And um, God put me in this group with the woman who was the facilitator, and she was an Italian woman from Philly. And I'm like, Lord, you just knew, didn't you? I needed, I needed that because she understood my family dynamic better than someone who didn't come from that culture. And no, the room was not shocked. No, and it was not judgmental. So that was good. So you realize you need healing when you act out and you have this one-night stand. Right. You start piecing things together. Right. And you realize you you need some healing. So you, you talk to your friend. Mm-hmm. Your friend recommends this class, Life Skills. Right. What is the curriculum? Who taught it? Where did it come from? Give me kind of the high-level 30,000-foot views of what life skills is because other people out there may be, you know, if they want to look for something similar, what kind of give me that high-level view. The high-level view was it was a man by the name of Paul Hextrom back in the early 80s who uh, basically was sent to anger management because he – he was involved with domestic violence. Like he abused his wife. And um, in the midst of this anger management, he's like, he didn't feel like he really got any help. And I think somehow he meets a Christian. I don't know the exact testimony, but he winds up getting saved and recognizes like, wow, like my whole life I've been this person that is just despicable and I, I need to help other people not walk down this road. And he develops a curriculum from a biblical worldview. And it, the 30,000 view is like, hey, your family of origins, there's some things that you learn about yourself that are either implied or inferred or shown to you. And from that, you typically have your, you know, your belief system. Some of it's a false belief system. Some of it's helpful. Some of it's not. And that program helps you sort through those and um, gives you a practical application to how to handle some of the, the life challenges that you have. And so in this class, part of the healing process how do they start you down that road? What what do they start you out with? Uh, I mean, it's a while since I took the program, but I think you start off with um, 
how your brain functions. I mean, it was very scientific the first few classes, and then the next few classes were, you know, I don't know that I have a really good grasp of how to remember, but I know that we did talk through some stages of grief, and, um, you know, we, we talked about denial a lot, and that's really the first stage of grief. And I think a lot of people stay in denial for a long time. Yeah, and going back to what we were talking about earlier, you do have to grieve when it's not a person. Yeah. When you don't, and not necessarily when you lose a person. For myself, I, I obviously didn't go through a divorce, uh, so I, I, I can't relate on that level, but I did lose a job. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did lose a job, and you absolutely need to grieve when something like that happens. So what does, what did life skills, what did you learn? Start unpacking the grieving process for divorce, for losing a job, for any loss. Start unpacking that for me. Well, just like when you lost a job, you know, you have this denial phase of like, I can't believe this is happening. Like this, I don't want to deal with, the loss of a potential career path. I don't want to deal with the loss of hopes and dreams I put into this person that was my promise to love me forever. You know, so when you're you're getting divorced, that that first like initial like you're dealing with the what could have been. The I promised that we would do life together every day forever and now it's done. And you know that it's happened. You're not denying that it happened. You're actually denying whether you're in pain about it. That's typically what it is. No, I'm fine. I'm okay. And you can stay stuck in that because life has to go on. You have bills to pay. You have. I had a teenage son. I had to make sure I had a roof over his head. I had also lost a job. So I had to be able to push through just to do life. So I stayed in that survival mode. So the denial that I was really in pain, I, I kind of muscled through that for a while before I really did anything about it. Yeah, you can even deny sometimes life happens in seasons. Mm-hmm. There are seasons of reaping. There are seasons of sowing. Uh, spring, winter, fall, and summer in life. And, and you can even deny what season you're in. You know, you you lose a job, you can sit there like I I blamed everything except myself. I blamed my boss. I blamed all sorts of things, finances. The the company was struggling a little bit, and so on and so forth. And I was in denial that any of it was was my fault. But yet, the reality was a big part of it was my fault. But not just that. But I was entering into a season of winter. In mm. uh, in. I had to come face to face with that reality of, hey, this this is going to be a tough season. And I sat in that season for about seven years. Wow. Seven. It took me seven years. And that that's when I believe in the last episode I was talking about that I, I felt like I was God's punching bag a little bit. And it's because I got saved right around that time. Mm-hmm. And then I entered into a seven-year season of winter. Explain winter, where somebody who doesn't speak that kind of Christian language might go, "Well, what does that mean? It was just a hard year. It was a it hard- was it was a hard it, it was a hard probably year to year and a half where I lost everything. I lost my dog. I lost my job. I lost my girl. Lost you were a country music. I uh, was yeah, right <laughs> out of yep, right out out of an Alan Jackson album and um. And, and all I was left with was a drum. I'm a musician, and all I had left was my drum and and the Bible. And and really, God took everything else away from me because he, he needed to teach me some things, including how to be patient, um, so on and so forth. And, and I was in that season... I was in that season for quite some time. I was coasting. It felt like I was coasting for about seven years. Um, and and I was, especially as, like like you said, it took you five and a half years for your pride to kind of catch up with you. What, what I think people miss is Christianity is, it's a long 
race. Yes. Christianity is a marathon. It is not a sprint. There's a reason why when you turn on ESPN and they're running the Boston Marathon at the start of the race, it is just a mass of humanity. Mm -hmm. And by the finish line, it's people trickling across and most of the time exhausted they're completely exhausted <laughs> sometimes they're propping each other up and and so on and so forth i, I even heard a quote it, it, it's so simple and so silly and yet so amazing where they said you know the, the problem with life is it's just so daily <laughs> and, and and it really christianity can be a long race with days that are so same Mm-hmm. That things like pride and so on and so forth can, can it can absolutely come in. You just start getting tired. The same as being on a treadmill. And let's translate years to miles. For you, you had run five and a half miles and you started getting tired. Yeah. And it was roughly the same for me where I, I started getting tired, but I was still in a season of winter and God was still asking me, Mike, Mike, you got to hang on. Just hang on. You got another, you didn't tell me I had a mile and a half to go. I think if he tells us, we, we would probably be like, oh, whew, okay, but that's yeah. not what faith is. It's that's it. going forward without knowing and um, trusting that God is good in the process and that's where you and I, you know, we do have that kind of similarity, at least in this particular part of my history was, I think you're holding out on me, God. Yeah. And you were saying, I, I have a hard time thinking that you were good. Yeah. And it was because he, he was taking his sweet time and yes, I was getting tired of running on that rush. treadmill. She's never no, in a rush. I was tired of running on that treadmill. And, and so, you know, I, I, I definitely had it within me where I, I was denying that there was a part of me that was denying that God, I felt like God was good. Uh, I, I was not in that camp. I, I, I didn't register in my brain. So there was denial on who God was. There was denial on my roles and my responsibility in losing the job. Mm-hmm. There was denial everywhere. Absolutely. Denial can be very seducing because it gives you this like false sense of I'm in control because I'm just going to, I'm going to power through it. I'm going to bulldog through something. And I think um, those people, you know, that have control issues, this is denial and anger tend to be those things where you you feel like you have control when you really don't. Yeah. So anger is step number two, right? In the process. Yes. And people can flutter back and forth between those two items. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anger in a lot of the other stages of grief can you vacillate back and forth. It's a, it's not. I get to this step and then I go to the next one. Like just like life, there's ups and downs and peaks and valleys. And there's an amazing quote I heard recently from C.S. Lewis that really resonated with me. And it was, um, I sat with my anger long enough until she told me her name. Wait, my grief. I sat with my anger long enough until she told me her real name was grief. And you're like, wow, that's that's true. You know, we we hold on to anger, but really what we're holding on to is this pain that we're not processing through. Yeah. And what was interesting, you touched on it earlier. It was ripple effects. Right. So for you, Mm -hmm. it wasn't just the denial and the anger of the divorce itself. It was the life you were trying to build together with Mike. It was your son can very easily be damaged when you go through a divorce. Now he's been exposed and he could potentially be vulnerable. Who knows what kind of wounding that can have. You have to, so you're not just denying, you're not just angry because of, the divorce, but it is all those ripple effects of tossing that little stone in the puddle and, and, you know, all the effects that that can have. You have to grieve all the effects. That's the truth. It's not just, I'm, I have to grieve the fact that we're divorced. It's, there's consequences. And that, and that falls along the same line when you get to forgiveness. Like you're not just forgiving the act, you're forgiving the consequences that that act had on your life. You're, you're forgiving the ripple. 
And that's, that's hard, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think so many people get stuck here. You can sit. For years. Yeah. What was the statistic you had? It was something along the lines of the average person, when they get wounded, they're stuck. Well, it's when someone experiences trauma and I, you could certainly say that divorce can be traumatic, um, but all kinds of trauma, sexual abuse, um, violence, whatever it may be, it, it, on average, they're finding in studies that it takes about 11 years for people to seek treatment. And it, you know, it's because it's really hard. It's hard. It, yeah. Not just hard, but denial is easy. Yes. Denial is very easy. It's as simple as, no, I don't need help. Right. Well, or it's like I got addict, this. Right? Yeah. You have to first come out of denial before you can get any kind of help. I mean, it really is the first step to any kind of healing. Yeah, first step in AA. Yes. My name is Mike Snyder, and I have a problem. I drink too much, whatever it may be, yeah. but it's always the first step. And I, I even have mentioned before, honesty is one of the only areas, maybe even the only area where there is a side of the coin where you're more important from a certain perspective than God is. And and let me unpack that because I don't want that to be heard wrong. If I'm not honest with myself first, I can't be honest with God. And so Mm, you have to put yourself first in that because if, if you don't and you're not honest with God, let me give you an example. If you get a job opportunity to go work somewhere and they are willing to pay you more money than the current job, you could pray and say, dear God, I want this job because I'm going to be giving back to the community. But in reality, the true motivation is you want more money. So now you're, you're putting God in a really tough situation where how does he answer that prayer? You're not being honest with yourself. And, and I, don't want to, I don't want to be misheard here. At the end of the day, you don't even come close to comparing yourself to God. But you understand the perspective that I'm giving where how do you have a conversation with God? If I, if I came to approach you on something. Right. And I said, I wanted to do, you know, X, Y, and Z, but I was not honest with you about all the different reasons. Yeah, what's the motive? Exactly. What's the motive? What's what's really going on here? You really have to be honest with yourself. And so many people, when they're stuck in denial, they're not being honest with themselves. And that's why you get stuck there is you can't turn to God and go, God, I have a problem. Right. And God will go, okay, now that you acknowledge that, we can get to work. Yeah. And I think that's why we're always encouraged to be in the Word because the, the Word is a mirror unto our souls. It reads us. It's living. And when you're into, let's say you're in Proverbs, there's so many things in Proverbs that just jump out at you and go, oof. Like, I've been corrected by God through the book of Proverbs more times than I can count. Um, So in order to get out of denial, you have to kind of see yourself through that biblical lens. And God will show you verses where he wants to correct you and move you. And I think that's one of the things that denial sometimes puts us in a point where we're like, yeah, I'm fine. I don't have to read my Bible. I'm good. You know, it becomes... Uh, the driving force in survival. Sur- yeah, in survival, really. And it's unfortunate. Yeah, and I, I, I've also heard you, you talking about how anger is really a secondary emotion. Definitely. It's almost the mask that people are putting on because of what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, because it's easier to um, put up an angry wall than it is to be vulnerable. And, and vulnerability is not viewed favorably in this culture and in lots of cultures. And so unfortunately, we haven't really figured out that vulnerability is an immense act of courage. We look at it as it's weakness. Somebody's being vulnerable. Ah, that, that, they're being weak. And until we can shift that perspective, People aren't real prone to being vulnerable. But... Especially men. Oh, yeah. Especially men. That's one of the hard areas for men. Yeah. 
yeah. Hollywood and, and external pressures and all sorts of things have, have really made someone being brave enough to come forward with something um, frowned upon. Yes. And it's just, it's not healthy, not healthy. And, and if I can speak to my sisters out there and, and anyone that's listening that's a female, like we want men to be more romantic and more sensitive and be able to talk through things. And why can't he just cry it out? And, and yet when that happens, we're uncomfortable with it and we don't know how to deal with their vulnerability. So we have to also do a better job of... You can't say, I want this, and then as soon as you get it, you don't manage it well. So that's something that I I always hope to do with you. Like if you get to a point where you need to just be vulnerable, I want to be tender in that because I want you to know you're you're in a safe place with me to do that. I'm not judging you. I'm with you. I'm your teammate. You know what I mean? Yeah, home, home needs to be a safe place. For sure. For sure. It's a team. So... After anger comes bargaining. bargaining. Now, this one, bargaining, as you and I have talked about your divorce, bargaining for you uh, almost was wearing a mask of shame, right? The I could have. If I had only done something yeah. different. I I should. I should. Okay. Yes. And the, the should, and we've talked about this before, is anytime you... You should yourself. You're you're shaming yourself. It's I should have done this. I should have behaved this way. And when you start that dialogue in your head, it immediately sets you in a shame cycle. And it's important that we we speak to ourselves in a way that's very clear. Um, there is no should. There is I've I've done this and it yielded this result. And I don't like this result. So what can I do differently this time around? It's a more tender approach. And I think the bargaining was like, I I really don't know if I understood like that I was bargaining with God, but maybe the celibacy was that bargaining in my head. If I do this right, you're going to bless me with this great husband down the road. And you don't walk through obedience to get something. You walk through obedience because God is awesome. And obedience is an act of worship, but it's also God's protection for you. Like when you trust that God really knows best, the obedience is just a natural progression of like, he's not holding out on me. He knew he wants what's best for me. But I don't think that I knew that at that time. You know, I think if I had to call something in my walk a bargain, it was definitely in the area of of the celibacy. That was probably the hardest act of um, self-control I've ever had to participate in for me. Yeah, and, and, you know, if you've lost a job or, you know, my my parents, I, I had a brother that passed away at nine months old. You better believe that they were bargaining with yeah. God. You know, my, my dad kept a diary the entire time that my brother was in the hospital because he thought that when my brother was healed, he was going to tour the country telling the story about how his son was miraculously healed from this heart condition. Um, and lo and behold, that that wasn't the case. But when you have a sick child, especially as a man, like there is part of me that absolutely wants to protect, wants to protect you wants to protect a child, that that is ingrained in me, right? I'm a provider and protector and so on and so forth that sometimes the worst can be when you have a sick child and you there is no choice. You, you, you cannot protect that child. You have to understand that that child is in God's hands and that that can be very intimidating, can be very scary. I'm sure. You know, what? what's the saying? Faith isn't knowing what tomorrow holds, but knowing who, who holds, holds tomorrow. tomorrow. You know, you, you can have all these signs, you know, put that on a sticky note and put it on your, your, your mirror in your bathroom. Doesn't make it any easier. You know, it, it's one of those things that you got to really pray through. And this is the wrestling with God. It, it is. People go, what do you mean you wrestle with God? It, isn't that disrespectful? And it's like, well, no, God wants you to have 
the opportunity to work through things with him. That's what a good relationship is, right? You work through and you wrestle through ideas and fears and sadness and why and all of those things. You wrestle those out with God. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You think of Jacob. Yeah. I think he walked the rest of his life with a limp, but he knew exactly who gave him the limp right? and why he was limping. And he, he thought he was wrestling with a man. And I think God really appreciated his tenacity. And that there's such a fine line when it comes to bargaining. Because with my brother, when he passed away, the bargaining in our case didn't work. Yeah. And yet, God is still good. Yes. So then becomes then comes the grieving process, right? Then comes depression, anger, depression. There, there's a whole wave of emotions, mm-hmm. you know. But at 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 the end of the day, at my brother's funeral, the the message that was preached, we said the theme mm-hmm. of the message: it has to be peace. It has to be peace. So the verse that we chose was Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Because next to your salvation, right? Salvation comes through faith. Next to your salvation, having peace with God is the next greatest gift we will get this side of heaven. And so if you can substitute bargaining for God's perspective, and having peace, and that takes time. Your perspective on on life will change drastically. That bargaining goes away, and you go, okay, God, this was the path you chose, and you are absolutely perfect. What am I missing? Yeah, that's it. What don't I understand yet? And I don't want to repeat this pattern, so... Show me. Show me me is a very brave prayer, and it's not always pretty. (laughs) But he will. He'll show you. And he can be very tender about it. Like, show you piece by piece. Oh, yeah, you got to deal with this, Deborah. You got to deal with that. This is not healed yet, daughter. And you're not going to be able to walk in the things I have for you until it is. And it, it's interesting, you know, being, again, being a musician, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're learning to play an instrument or you're learning to play a song, your teacher, your instructor, whatever method you're using, most of the time they will start you, let's use a scale, for example, they'll start you with a very simple scale and they'll say, go home, practice it for a week, practice it for a month and come back. When you come back and you show that you've practiced it, over time, they will give you more, mm. and they'll make it more difficult because you're practicing and you're putting in the effort, and those things that used to be hard are becoming easier and easier. God's no different. He'll give you something. He will give you a burden. He will make you. He will ask you to walk down a path of divorce that you don't want to go down. He will ask you to go down a path of losing a child that you don't want to go down because it's it's hard, but if you do and you do it his way and you can find peace, now all of a sudden you're, you're very teachable. And, and that's, that's what his goal is. He wants to turn you into an image of his son, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. And I think you said something interesting about finding peace. I don't, I don't want anyone to get the impression that it's just, you know, it's around the corner and I just need to find it. I think the Effort is the seeking of God, that he provides the peace. It's the only thing that we need to do is press in and and peace washes over. And that doesn't mean every single time you're going to feel peaceful in prayer, but it's, it's that seeking him that peace becomes a part of your life because you really do get to see God in an intimate way and that intimacy can feel like a hug 
And, and I know there were many a times just weeping and feeling like God was right there with me. And he, not, not just feeling, knowing that he was with me in that pain. And, that, and that's something, you know, it, we've mentioned just within the last few minutes, a, a word that's tricky for, especially for youth, the word feeling. Oh, yes. Right. So you had a radical transformation. And when you tell your story, you you had uh, pre-Jesus, you, you smoked cigarettes. As soon as you got saved, you, you were able to instantly, without problem, give them up. You went from drinking and going to the bar to not. It was such a radical transformation, and your son watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, that now, fast forward all these years, you know, he struggles sometimes in his search for Jesus because he doesn't necessarily feel something. Feeling, feeling like the proverb says, don't trust feelings, don't trust your heart. Trust God. Trust right. Jesus. Don't lean on your own understanding. Exactly, because mm-hmm. you, you know, this younger generation, they they love to feel something. They want to. They want the give, experience. Yeah, they want to give to a charity or, or or something along those lines, like GoFundMe. Part of the reason why that's succeeding so much is younger generations can say, I, "I'd love to give five dollars to this." And when I see in a month or two that this person has gotten better, you know, whatever it may be that they were donating to, it makes them feel good for just a few dollars. Feelings can be, they're fleeting. Dopamine alone causes so many feelings that are, you're building your house on sand and not on on the rock that you got to be careful with feelings. I have a a dear friend who uh, is younger than me and we talk often so that I can kind of give her some of my life experiences. Because like we said in the beginning, if it helps you not go through something and suffer, let me impart what I've learned. And I always say, feelings are not facts. They're not facts. Feelings are feelings. Facts are facts. And I think in our our spiritual walk, um, even sometimes in worship, I didn't, I didn't, that music didn't, I didn't feel anything from that music. Well, is it about you or is it about worship? Are you there for a feeling? Um, are you there for who God is? And I, and I had someone in my life early on in my walk with Jesus often tell me, don't, don't trust your feelings. What does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about that? And she was always good to bring me back to the word. And it's, you'll hear a lot. Nowadays, this is my truth. Oh, I hate that, Michael. I hate it. My truth is X, Y, and Z. That, that shouldn't that, that that should count for nothing. It implodes on itself. It, so often, it implodes on itself. It's not what is my. It's what is the truth. Right. Jesus says, "I am the way, mm-hmm. the truth. He is the only way." Right, he is the plumb line of all truth. He is truth. He that's it. He is truth. Truth is God. God is truth. My truth means absolutely nothing to God. Means absolutely nothing. And and I think you know again feelings. We put so much dependency on feelings that even again stage number four in all of this is depression. Again, that is just such complex feelings happening it's tough it's tough to navigate those waters because what do you trust right what do you trust and so you know when when i was going through my seven years you know wandering around what felt like the wilderness there were days there there were weeks where i didn't shave (laughs) <laughs> there were weeks where I didn't even go outside and, and go get the mail. And that literally had to become my goal for today is I am going to go downstairs and check the mail. Yep. Because that's one more step than I took yesterday. I know. But I had to celebrate that as a win. And that, that it yeah, can depression be. Depression is real, you know, and we don't want to just equate it to only feelings. Like depression can be very biological. 
Um, sometimes it's an imbalance um, of your brain chemistry. And it is absolutely part of the process of grieving. I, I think you have to hit that stage because sometimes in the depression, there is a little bit of slowing down and self-care. Like maybe you do need to sleep it off. Maybe you do need to stop barreling through life. And sometimes depression is that thing that helps us um, take a nap. You know, I think often of uh, Elijah, you know, he has this incredible moment where he is um, dealing with the prophets of Baal and he has this climactic moment where he basically shows up all these idols and um, he has a big win for God. And everybody sees Jehovah, God, is the only God. And all these other false idols that were being worshipped in the culture are nothing. And he has this aha moment, you know, and then he hits this peak and then he drops into a deep depression because Jezebel, the queen, is like, I want you. I'm coming after you. And um, God, what does God do? He, 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 Elijah flees and God gives him a tree that he can sleep under and he feeds him. He goes, get some rest, get some rest. I have something for you, but right now, Elijah, you need to rest. And he had a, what, what would commonly be known as a depression. And God took care of him in that depression, let him rest, fed him, cared for him, and even gave him the reassurance, hey, there are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You are not alone, Elijah. Now rise up and go. I have something else for you. And I think, wow, like, God just let him rest, you know? And he did have something else for him. He did. You know, fast forward several years after both of our times in the wilderness, if you will, and you know we're we're three years, a little over three years into a happy, healthy marriage. Had Praise we known, God. yeah, no kidding, right? There, he absolutely had something for him. He, you know, God God sees the potential in everybody, saved or not. God sees the full potential of every single person, and that's why he is able to love far beyond what you and I ever could because he sees the full potential. Man, I see this person for who they are, and if they could just let go of this, stop being in denial, let's work on this anger, whatever it may be, he knows what we can turn into. He knows that full untapped potential. And I think that's that's where, so step number four is depression. And then you have um, acceptance. Acceptance is the fifth one. Okay. Yes, yes. And acceptance, it may take a long time to get to acceptance. Acceptance doesn't just follow after depression. Like, okay, I've done my depression now. Now I'm ready to accept. It doesn't work like that. It takes time, and I think acceptance really can't happen until you hit forgiveness. In my experience, how can you accept something until you forgive it? And so um, what I'd love to do next episode is to really dive into forgiveness. And like I said earlier in this episode, it's not you're not just forgiving the things that have happened. You're, you're forgiving the ripple effect, the consequences. And it took me a long time to forgive. I, I wish I could, you know, raise my Christian banner and said, I made it. I forgave real quick. I did not. I did not. The deeper the wound, so many times, the, the longer it yes. takes to forgive. It really does. You could have, if your child is taken from you, meaning abducted, and you need to forgive the person that took your little baby girl, how much time would you have to spend with God and how much wrestling are you going to have to do to reach that point of forgiveness? That is not going to happen overnight. That is a marathon. No joke about it. No kidding. So the deeper this wound, the, the deeper the pain. Right. You're going to have to spend time and you're going to have to trust. And, and, and that, that can be a very scary thing. And there are questions all along the way. Uh, 
but I, I think, yeah, I think that would be wonderful. I know some of the things that we want to get into are uh, kind of a little bit of myth busting, if you will, with forgiveness. Yes. Some of the things like forgiveness is blank and forgiveness is not blank. Those yeah. are some of the things that we kind of want to talk through. Yeah, because there's a lot of misconceptions about forgiveness. And one of them is I have to feel like I forgive. No, <laughs> feelings are not facts. And I think that one, uh, I got tripped up a long time on that. And I'd really like to uh, dive into that next week. Yeah, and I think you've even talked about you have a letter of forgiveness. I do. That you, you know, prior to us recording this episode, you said, I, I think I want to read that in episode four or five, depending on how yeah. it breaks down. But give us just a little teaser of that. Uh, it was a letter that I wrote to my ex-husband. Um, and as a matter of fact, I wrote several letters of forgiveness through life skills that were never meant to be sent uh, so that I could process through. And it really, it hits, this is what happened. This was the ripple effect. This is what your behavior did. This is what my behavior did. And today I choose a different path. And it's a really great structure when you're ready to forgive, to kind of process it out on paper. I think it's incredibly therapeutic to be able to do that and to be able to pour your heart out. Whether that letter ever gets sent or not is not the point. It's the process that God takes you through to really process the pain. And that's what you're doing. You're processing through the pain. Well, that sounds like an amazing episode. That's what we have to look forward to. We will get yeah. to that letter either in the next one, time willing, uh, but if not that one, definitely episode number five. Uh, but yes, we thank you guys for everything. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, we appreciate it. We look forward to seeing you next time. And we, uh, we wish you well. See you later, guys. Thanks for listening to Detours. For more content, you can find us on Spirit FM Radio. Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Play, or on our website at detours.life. To view my writings or to contact me for public speaking engagements, visit my website at debmarsalisi.com.